Our first reading today is by George Tiger, who is a Unitarian Universalist minister and military chaplain. This is a reflection of the time he spent in Afghanistan with our army. Towers of Babel. I've purchased a set of Islamic prayer beads from one of our local shop owners. The set has 99 beads, one for each of the names of God in Islam. These are not literally God's names, as if we call God Joe or Bob, but the attributes Muslims ascribe to the holy, including the merciful, the shaper, the sustainer, the loving one. In the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, the people hoped to reach God and make their name famous, as if God were a thing to be used for their own vanity. As a result, the people of the world were scattered into diverse cultures and languages, presumably each with its own understanding of God. In part, this reflects the pre-scientific worldview in which God exists somewhere above us. The people thought they could stand face to face with God just by erecting a tall enough building. But the story is also about the human need to own and control things. When so much is out of our control, the lessons of Babel are important for all of us. We can all build towers of Babel when we use God for our own purposes. We can use God to dismiss others, to assert our superiority, to divide people into those who belong and those who don't. If we think of God as a thing in a place like the citizens of Babel did, we tend to decide that God is with us and not them. That is why I like the Islamic notion of 99 names of God. Each of those names is a reminder that God is a reality woven into the very fabric of being. God cannot be named or held or possessed, but must ultimately be experienced as love, justice, mercy, peace, compassion, creator, and more. What names might you find for God? To put it another way, where have you experienced the holy in your life? even here in this place? When does God feel far away? How has the divine been close to you? These questions can tear down the towers of Babel in our minds and bring us down to earth where God lives every day. Different ways to pray. There was the method of kneeling, a fine method. If you lived in the country where stones were smooth, the women dreamed wistfully of bleached courtyards, hidden corners where knee fit rock. Their prayers were weathered rib bones, small calcium words uttered in sequence, as if this shedding of syllables could somehow fuse them to the sky. There were the men who'd been shepherds so long they walked like sheep. Under the olive trees, they raised their arms. Hear us. We have pain on earth. We have so much pain, there's nowhere to store it. 
but the olives bobbed peacefully in fragrant buckets of vinegar and thyme. At night, the men ate heartily flat bread and white cheese and were happy in spite of the pain because there was also happiness. Some prized the pilgrimage, wrapping themselves in new white linen to ride buses across miles of vacant sand. When they arrived at Mecca, they would circle the holy places on foot many times. They would bend to kiss the earth and return their lean faces housing mystery. While for certain cousins and grandmothers, the pilgrimage occurred daily, lugging water from the spring or balancing the baskets of grapes. These were the ones present at births, humming quietly to perspiring mothers, the ones stitching intricate needlework into children's dresses, forgetting how easily children soil clothes. There were those who didn't care about praying, the young ones, the ones who'd been to America. They told the old ones, you're wasting your time. Time? The old ones prayed for the young ones. They prayed for Allah to mend their brains, for the twig, the round moon, to speak suddenly in a commanding tone. And occasionally, there would be one who did none of this. The old man Fauzi, for example, Fauzi the fool, who beat everyone at dominoes, insisted he spoke with God as he spoke with goats, and was famous for his laugh. For a dying tomcat who's relinquished his former hissing and predatory nature, I remember the long orange carp you once scooped from the neighbor's pond, bounding beyond her swung broom across summer lawns to lay the fish on my stoop. Thanks for that. I'm not one to whom offerings often get made. You let me feel how Christ might feel when I kneel, weeping in the dark, over the usual maladies, love and its lack. Only in tears do I speak directly to him and with such conviction. And only once you grew frail did you finally slacken into me, dozing against my ribs like a child. You gave up the predatory flinch that snapped the necks of so many birds and slow-moving rodents. Now your once powerful jaw is malformed by black malignancies. It hurts to eat. So you surrender in the way I pray for. Lord, before my own death, let me learn from this animal's deep release into my arms. Let me cease to fear the embrace that seeks to still me. Please feel free to join me in singing from your seat. <clears throat> Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in a place just right, we'll be. Bow and to bend, we shan't be. 
I sat shivering in an overly air-conditioned classroom. I had been in Egypt for a week, and I had finally adjusted to the time zone difference. I was still adjusting to the heat and the dramatic swings between heat and air conditioning that meant me every time I went from building to outside to building. But I was ready, or at least thought I was ready, to start taking some classes at the American University in Cairo, where I had enrolled for the semester. At that stage in my life, I thought I was going to work in the Foreign Service and bring peace to the world, single-handedly. Things have changed since then, but that was the ambition. So it was the first day of colloquial Egyptian-Arabic class, and I was eager to understand the language that I'd been hearing all around me. My professor started gesturing around the room and saying unfamiliar words. Kitab, he said as he held up a book. Kitub, he said as he held up multiple books. Maktab, he said as he pointed at a desk. And makatib, as he pointed at several. He pantomimed writing and said aktub. And as he continued to pantomime writing, he quietly started repeating k t b k t b k t b and gestured for all of us to repeat that sound and action. While most of the words and phrases that I learned in that class have long since faded from memory, the memory of that first day, that first approach to the language, lingers. I really enjoy learning languages. I'm not particularly good at it, but I work hard and spend lots of time with flashcards and listening to recordings and trying to get the vowels and other sounds right. And my favorite part is learning the grammar about how another language organizes itself, learning about the great diversity of how languages can work and stretching my brain to understand unfamiliar patterns. In that class in Cairo, I learned that Arabic and other Semitic languages, so Hebrew, Aramaic, other languages like that, have what are called root consonants. So this means that words related to a certain idea contain the same three consonants in the same order, with different vowels between them and sometimes other consonants around the edges. So on that first day of class, we were learning the k, t, b group of words, all of which relate to writing. So kitab is the Arabic word for books, kutub for books, maktab is desk, and makatib is desks, aktub is I write. All of them have k, t, b in some order in them. So the patterns continue throughout much of the language. And so as my comprehension grew and I learned more of these patterns, I couldn't always understand what was being said around me, but I could sometimes hear the familiar consonants and at least have a guess of, oh, it's about writing or speaking or helping or something. So before this learning, I had wondered why we call the followers of Islam, which is the tradition we're exploring this month, Muslims. The two words seemed unrelated to me. 
And then I learned about root consonants in Arabic, and it made sense. So both the word Islam and Muslim share the s l m as their root consonants. So that is how they relate to one another, and we borrowed them into English and used them. The s l m consonant group is made up of words related to safety, security, peace, and submission. So salim means whole or unbroken. Salema means safety. Salam means peace. Islam literally means surrender or submission, but with connotations of peacefulness and wholeness that our English language words don't have. And Muslim means one who submits. So these are words related through the Semitic pattern of root consonants, not through the rules of our English grammar. So if you ever wondered about the relationship between those words, wonder no more. Although knowing that these two words, that Islam and Muslim have their roots in submission or surrender, might open a whole other set of wondering, it does for me. As someone with commitments to justice, especially feminist commitments, I struggle with the idea of submission or surrender as valuable ideas. Surrender seems like defeat. What is good about that? What is spiritual about that? Why would one of the world's major religions name itself that? And submission makes my skin crawl even more. Perhaps yours too. I struggle to separate the ideas of submission from hierarchical calls for women to submit to men, wives to submit to husbands, slaves to submit to masters, and yet two million people are Mus- two billion people are Muslim, identifying themselves as people who submit, finding religious meaning in the ideas of submission and surrender. Months ago, I set this as a focus for worship today because I had a sense that there was something here I needed to figure out that we might need to learn together. So let us see if that hunch was right. One of the most compelling frameworks for comparative religion that I know is to see that each of the world's wisdom traditions understands the problems of humanity in a different way, and then offers a different set of solutions because of that understanding. To speak in broad generalizations, Christianity sees the problem as sin, Hinduism as a cycle of rebirth, Confucianism as chaos, and so on. And Islam posits that humanity's problem is that we think we are self-sufficient, and we are not self-sufficient. We are wholly dependent on others and on forces and circumstances outside our control. We are wholly dependent on God. To a Muslim, any ideas that we hold about our own independence are illusions. This is not a uniquely Muslim teaching. We Unitarian Universalists hold it sometimes in parts of our ways of thinking. We value our independence and our inherent worth, and we believe, in the inher- we believe in the interdependent web 
of all existence. As a community that is not bound together by shared belief, we hold many views about what is most important and about if some sort of God is and how that God might be. But we affirm the idea that we are all connected in an interdependent web of all existence. This is a reminder that we as individuals are not self-sufficient. We as individuals are not the center of the universe. We don't agree necessarily on what is the center of the universe, or if the idea of the center of the universe is a useful metaphor given what we know about cosmology now. But we believe that we as individuals are not in that central position. One of my favorite readings in the hymnal is a gentle reminder of this truth. It is by Richard M. Fuchs, who's a retired white Unitarian Universalist minister who spent his career serving congregations in Massachusetts. Here are his words. For the sun and the dawn, which we did not create, for the moon and the evening, which we did not make, for food, which we plant but cannot grow, for friends and loved ones we have not earned and cannot buy, for all things which come to us as gifts of being from sources beyond ourselves, we lift up our hearts in thanks this day. This isn't quite submission and surrender, but it is remembering that self-sufficiency is an illusion. All of us are wholly dependent on others. Today, if we have eaten, we know that the food grew because of the hard work of the sun and soil and human hands and human ingenuity. We have traversed roads to get here that were constructed through the actions of others and the funding of us all. We are in a church community that exists because of the commitment and generosity of thousands of people stretching back to 1855 here in Kalamazoo. The list of the ways we depend on others goes on and on and on. The story I told our children this morning from Rabbi Simcha Bunim reminds us that we are simultaneously the reason the world was created and nothing more than dust and ashes. The pocket that reminds us that we are dust and ashes calls us towards submission and surrender. It calls us to remember that the world is big and we are small. While we all matter, we simultaneously don't matter that much. And holding that balance is the challenge. Balancing the teachings of the two pockets, the reality that we matter and we don't matter that much, is part of the religious life, the life of integrity. Striking that balance between self-importance and self-abnegation is a project that lasts a lifetime. And having a spiritual community or theological framework to do it often makes it easier. We need others to help us remember that we are not actually in control and to make sense of that reality that we are not in control. In the varieties of religious experience, psychologist William James writes that religion is one of the ways humanity makes sense and makes meaning out of the submissions and surrenders 
that, our, that life requires of us that come, whether from illness or injury, disappointment, loss, we are reminded over and over and over again that we are not in control. He writes, when all is said and done, we are in the end absolutely dependent on the universe and into sacrifices and surrenders of some sort, deliberately looked at and accepted, we are drawn and pressed as into our only permanent position of repose. Now in those states of mind which fall short of religion, the surrender is submitted to as an imposition of necessity and the sacrifice is undergone at the very best without complaint. In the religious life, on the contrary, Surrender and sacrifice are positively espoused. Surrender and sacrifice, even unnecessary giving ups, givings up are added in order that the happiness may increase. Religion thus makes easy and felicitous what in any case is necessary. And if it be the only agency that, that can accomplish this result, its vital importance as a human faculty stands vindicated beyond dispute. It becomes an essential organ of life, performing a function which no other portion of our nature can so successfully fulfill. That quote is denser than things I usually quote in our order of, in, a, in worship, and it is printed in the order of service. If you want to linger with that a little bit longer, I encourage you to. Church and other religious communities is one of the few places where we can name how not in control of the world we actually are and how we need to adjust to those forces and circumstances that are bigger than us. And that matters. William James argues that religion is how we make sense of the surrender and submission that we have to do whether or not we want to in this world. Islam, the religion named for submission, is in many ways expert at this component of the religious life. The submission and surrender of Islam is not a worldly submission of powerless or weak people to strong and powerful ones, but submitting to an all-merciful, all-compassionate, all-powerful God. The submission Islam calls for is orienting one's life by the five pillars of that faith, the five practices central to a Muslim religious life. So the faithful are instructed to give away a portion of their wealth every year. They make a pilgrimage to Mecca once in their lives if they are able. They fast during the month of Ramadan every year if they are able. They say the proclamation of faith. I testify that there is no God but God and Muhammad is the messenger of God. They pray five times a day. All of these practices are, remem are reminders of submission, acts to decenter oneself and remember one's interdependence. In Islam, prayer involves the whole body and leaves a mark on the body often. The daily prayer involves standing, 
bowing, sitting, and prostration, kneeling on the ground and leaning so far forward that one's forehead touches the ground in front of, in front of their knees. And it's a hard posture, often painful, and one that observant Muslims do five times a day, every day. They bow and they bend. When I lived in Cairo, I noticed that a lot of the older men had a discoloration or calluses or scarring on the middle of their foreheads, right here. And I asked a few local friends about it, and they told me it was from prayer, from the men scraping their foreheads on the ground over and over and over again for decades. And then they told me they weren't quite sure that it was really from that because they all knew people who prayed every day who did not end up with a mark like that. So they wondered if these men might have been a little rougher with their bodies on purpose to get those marks, those outward signs of faithfulness, or maybe they scraped themselves another time to look a little more devout. And the idea of competitive forehead scarring <laughs> delights me. <laughs> It reminds me that every community has, has people maybe more drawn to those outward signifiers of the, of the faithful life than the work of inner transformation. But the prostration matters, that posture. Religion scholar Karen Armstrong states that Muhammad, the 7th century Arabian prophet who began the Muslim tradition, taught his followers to pray with their bodies in this way so they would remember every day that they are submitting to God and to transforming their lives in accordance with what God requires of them. She writes, a Muslim is a man or woman who had made the submission of their entire being to Allah, God in Arabic, and his demand that human beings behave to one another justly with equity and compassion. It is an attitude expressed in the prostrations of the ritual prayer, which Muslims were required to make. It was abhorrent to the first Muslims to grovel on the ground. It was like they were slaves, but the prostrations were designed to counter the hard arrogance and self-sufficiency that was growing in Mecca in the time of Muhammad. The postures of their bodies would re-educate the Muslims, teaching them to lay aside their pride and selfishness and recall that before God, they were nothing. The postures of prayer serve the same purpose of one of the rabbi's slips of paper to remind us of our own insignificance in the grand scheme of things. Many of us tend, whether by our nature or the way that we have been shaped by the world, towards one of the rabbi's two pockets, to thinking we are the reason the world was created or thinking that we are only dust and ashes and not significant at all. So I invite you today and in this time ahead to metaphorically reach into the other pocket and see what it has to teach you. So if you tend towards the ideas of self-importance and self-sufficiency 
of being the reason the world was created in your own internal dialogue. Work to remember that you are also dust and ashes, perhaps with the slip of paper suggested by the rabbi, the body positions taught in Islam, the reading in the hymnal, or some other practice to remind yourself of our interdependence and that you matter, but not any more than anyone else. And if you are one who needs no reminding that you are dust and ashes, how can you claim that the world was created for your sake too? How can you know that your precious life is a, a unique revelation, that you, like all of us, are one more redeemer and irreplaceable in this world? So may we know in our hearts and show in our actions that we are not the center of the universe. May we know in our hearts and show in our actions that we are unique and precious and everyone else is too. And may we find ways to celebrate our self-sufficiency and the moments of necessary surrender and submission that come for us all. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.